This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome to New Books in Catholic Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. This channel and episode were created in collaboration with the American Catholic Historical Association, a conference of scholars, archivists, and teachers of Catholic studies. My name is Allison Isidore, and I'm a host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking with Dr. Sean Brennan, a professor of history at the University of Scranton. Sean is the translator and writer of the introduction for the KGB and the Vatican, Secrets of the Matrokin Files, published by Catholic University uh, of America Press uh, this past August. The KGB and the Vatican consists of transcripts, of the KGB records uh, concerning the policies of the Soviet secret police towards the Vatican and the Catholic Church in the communist world, transcripts provided by KGB archivist and defector Vasily Matrokin from the Second Vatican Council to the election of John Paul II. This valuable primary source collection also contains a historical introduction written by Brennan, who also translated the documents. Along with the topics covered in this book include how the Soviet regime viewed the efforts of uh, Pope John XXIII and Paul VI, who attempted to reach out to the eastern side of the Iron Curtain, uh, the religious underground in key cities of Leningrad and Moscow, and the election of uh, John Paul II and its effect on the tumultuous events in Poland in the late 1970s and early 1980s. Sean, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I was wondering if you know, we could start the interview by, you know, you telling us a bit about yourself. Sure. Um, I'm a professor of history at the University of Scranton. I've been there since 2009. Uh, I got my doctorate at the University of Notre Dame and my master's at Villanova and my bachelor's at Rockhurst, which is the Jesuit school in Kansas City. And um, pretty much throughout my academic career so far, I've generally written on the relationship between religion and politics, particularly in communist countries and um, during the 20th century, during the Second World War and the Cold War in particular. Uh, so this, you know, it's my third book, primary source collection, but my two previous works, the first one was on the Soviet occupation of Germany, and the second was on the life of an American priest named Fabian Flynn, but they all concern these issues as well. Yeah, and you know, before we dive into the book and the translations, can you tell us about how you came to this project? Well, I was really fortunate to come across this project because um, I, I wasn't when I was. Re- 
finishing up the biography on Fabian Flynn, the priest who put Europe back together, and you know, dealing of his remarkable life uh, for Catholic University of America Press, um, I received an email from them from Trevor Linscombe, who's the head editor there, and they said that they had obtained the rights to this archive, uh, a certain part of this archive, to translate it from Russian into English and to offer a historical introduction, that they could uh, create a primary source just out of this part of, of this unique archive. And since they knew that one of my main countries is Russian history, and they knew that I had dealt with so Soviet documents, so Russian language documents in my first book, um, they asked if I'd be interested in handling this project. And of course, I mean, <laughs> it's tricky enough sometimes, uh, difficult enough to get a uh, book published anywhere um, or to select a certain writing project that you think will have appeal. So when a press offers you the opportunity to uh, work on a project like this, uh, you take it. <laughs> and uh, like I said, I wish I could say uh, that it was some dramatic event that I smuggled these documents out of Russia after obtaining them in Moscow uh, or St. Petersburg, but that's not how it came down. Um, the Mitrokin archive, and of course I'll talk more about that in just a moment when you get to him, it's vast. Uh, Vasily Mitrokin transcribed tens of thousands of documents over basically two decades over a vast variety of different subjects and materials. So the material concerning specifically uh, the relation of the Soviet government and the secret police, uh, political police, the KGB and the Vatican, um, was only about 45, 50 pages long. And so that's, that's what Catholic University of America Press had the rights to translate and republish. And so then they asked me. So um, this is just a sm small snippet of his archive. There have been a number of works based on his materials written already, uh, but no one had translated. It was available in Russian on in PDF at the Wilson Center in Washington, D.C., but no one had yet translated this um, for publication or written a historical introduction for it. So it was a unique opportunity that was offered to me. And so I took it. Right. Yeah. And kind of sticking with, you know, writing and transcribing there, you know, what was the process for writing this historical introduction and then also transcribing this section that you um, got published? Well, I mean, fortunately, um, Vasily Mitrokin had a, a, a writing partner in the United Kingdom, which is where he defected to. Uh, Mitrokin has since passed away, uh, named Christopher Andrew, and they wrote a number of uh, works together based on Mitrokin's files on the KGB's activities all over the world. Uh, two, one, two in particular, The Sword and the Shield, and then The World Was Going Our Way. So I had biographical information about him. That wasn't some kind of mystery. But um, first off, I had to translate the documents from Russian into English, and then based on what I found, that kind of indicated uh, how I would write the historical introduction. I mean, I knew I'd talk a little bit about Mitrokin's life, uh, a little bit about the structures of the Soviet state, its views on religious institutions, the view of the papacy towards the Soviet government. But at, besides that, I, I basically had to see what the material was. And, and I point this out in the book, that what Mitrokin was doing 
was that he was he was working as an archivist for the KGB from the 60s into the 1970s. And in the late 60s, early 70s, a lot of the archival materials of the, of the KGB were moved from Moscow to the, the city of Moscow, the capital, to a suburb outside of it. So Mitrokin had access to these documents. So what he would do is he would take them home and then transcribe them. He would handwrite them. Uh, and he wouldn't write down specific documents. He'd just write summaries of what he had found. And then much, much later, he typed them all out. Uh, so consequently, uh, they kind of – his section on the Vatican jumps all over the place in terms of the time period. I mean roughly it's from the early 60s to the early 80s, but it drifts around from different subjects, different time periods. Uh, sometimes he talks about the position of the Catholic Church in Lithuania, other times in Ukraine, other times of underground religious communities in Moscow and Leningrad. Um, and then towards the end he talks about the election of uh, John Paul II and talks about other popes too but um so that made it kind of tricky as well it's not like it's an organized archive of here's 50 documents and here's a literal translation of them because again he didn't copy specific documents he basically summarized them so historians have had to be careful with using the mitrokin archive because of that because we don't have access to the original documents and <laughs> it is highly unlikely the government of the Russian Federation is ever going to, anytime soon, uh, allow uh, historians and researchers to look at those documents. Uh, some former Soviet republics, like Ukraine, like Lithuania, have opened up their KGB records. But Moscow is still the treasure trove because that's where they were headquartered. And, and so, again, I'm not, it's a valuable resource, but you have to be careful in using it. Right. Yeah. And, you know, we've talked a little bit or mentioned them a couple times now, um, that being the KGB, but they're such a central part of this book, right? Um, and the reason for the, you know, Matrokin leaving and write, translating these down. Um, so could you briefly talk about who the KGB were and what they, what role they played in the Soviet Union, and, you know, how does this connect to the Vatican? Oh, absolutely. So um, going back to October of 1917, uh, Lenin and the Bolsheviks stage a coup d'etat in Petrograd, which was the name of the Russian capital at the time. It had changed from St. Petersburg to Petrograd in 1914 when World War I began and Russia's fighting Germany. St. Petersburg sounded too German. <laughs> and then Petrograd in 1924 gets renamed to Leningrad after Lenin's death, and it goes back to St. Petersburg in 1994, just so we're clear about what city we're talking about. Um, and it was the capital of the Tsarist Empire, and then in 1918, Lenin moves the capital back to Moscow. But anyway, shortly after seizing power, uh, the foundations for what I call the three pillars that uphold the Soviet regime for the next 74 years are all established. Uh, and then it's important because later after World War II, when you have all of these satellite states set up in Eastern Europe, all modeled on the Soviet Union, they have the same three pillars holding them in place. And the three pillars were the party, the Communist Party. Uh, the Bolsheviks renamed themselves the Communists in February of 1918. The second is, of course, the Red Army. Uh, and the third is 
the secret police or the political police, uh, which is founded in early 1918. Lenin chose one of his most trusted associates uh, to administer it. His name was Felix Zerzhensky. He was actually a Polish communist. His nickname was Iron Felix Zerzhensky, known for his iron will and his uh, fanatical devotion to maintaining the political police as Mitrokin put it, the sword and the shield of the regime. Now, its first name was the Cheka, which was an acronym. It stood for the Extraordinary Commission to Destroy Counter-Revolution and Sabotage. <laughs> and if that sounds like a mouthful in English, it was in, in Russian, too. And it goes through a number of different name changes. It's renamed from the Cheka to the GPU, which means Main Political Directorate, and then the OGPU, the combined main political directorate, to the name it was famous for in Stalin's time, the NKVD, the People's Commissariat for Internal Affairs. Then in 1946, it becomes the Ministry of Internal Affairs. And then in 1954, you still have the Ministry of Internal Affairs, but the secret police functions are, are assigned to a committee within it, which is the name most people are familiar with, the KGB, which is Komitat Gosudarsvanoi Bezopasnost, which means... Committee for State Security. Committee for State Security. And along again with the army and the party, it was the most powerful institution within the Soviet Union. And its job was to hunt down – it was not to necessarily protect the regime from its external enemies, but its internal ones. To hunt down enemies of the state because of their religious views – political views, uh, their ethnic background, for example, and uh, basically whoever headed the KGB during most of the Soviet period was the second most powerful person in the Soviet regime. And basically, although the Soviet Union had regular police forces whose job it was to investigate actual crimes who who were responsible to the Ministry of the Interior, the KGB and its and its director reported directly to the highest levels of the party organization. So basically it was a law in and of itself. Uh, and in addition to having hundreds of thousands of full-time employees, it also had far more part-time or full-time uh, employees. Uh, and what I mean by that is people who informed on others. Uh, And so the KGB, in terms of its overall percentage of the population, wasn't as effervescent as, say, the East German secret police, the Stasi. Like, it's estimated somewhere between 1 in 8 or 1 in 10 East German citizens worked for the Stasi, either as a part-time informer. Uh, In the Soviet Union, it was mainly 1 in 20, 1 in 25. But still, the idea is you could never know who in the regime might be potentially working for them. Uh, so again, um, also one other thing that even its own members often called themselves uh, Czechist or Czechisti in Russian. So even though that wasn't the name from the early 1920s onward, often in the Soviet Union, people who worked for the KGB uh, were nicknamed uh, Czechists. But very powerful organization, responsible in Stalin's, Lenin and Stalin's time for literally millions of deaths. Uh, the KGB also ran the labor camp system. Uh, within the Soviet Union, the Gulag, which lasted from 1922 until 1987. Um, And also, um, 
The KGB, along with Soviet military intelligence, the GRU, was in charge of foreign espionage in the Soviet Union. So they sent out people who were nicknamed illegals, who might have been might have been Soviet citizens, they might not have been, but they didn't have diplomatic cover to engage in espionage all over the world. So again, they functioned as a secret police force within the Soviet Union, but also as it's along again of military intelligence, the GRU, its primary foreign intelligence and espionage unit. Right. Yeah. And we'll get into that uh, espionage uh, in a little bit, but, you know, I think we need to now talk about uh, Masili Matrokin, right? We've talked a little bit about the KGB. We've talked about the documents a little bit, but can you tell us who Vasily Matrokin was, right? Because he's passed away now. Um, and what was his relationship with the KGB? Oh, absolutely. Uh, well, he was born in 1922. He died in 2004. And his relationship with them was he worked for them for decades. Uh, he was born southeast of Moscow, and uh, he attended the Kharkov Higher Traditional Institute in Kazakhstan. Um, and what happens is, is that a lot of Soviet institutions during World War II, or specifically during the German invasion, are all evacuated to Central Asia, to Kazakhstan, to the parts to east of the Urals in the Russian Soviet Federated Socialist Republic. So it was a Ukrainian institution but again, it was relocated to Kazakhstan. So he basically studied Soviet law and the Soviet constitution. And he joined in the military prosecutor's office um, in 1943, uh, once it relocates back to that part of Ukraine when the Germans have been pushed out. Uh, basically, he was in charge of, or he worked with people whose job it was to find those in Ukraine who had collaborated with the Germans or were still fighting against Soviet authority being reimposed. So four years later, he joins, in 1948, he joins the KGB, uh, which was headquartered in Moscow, in Lubyanka Square. Uh, ironically, uh, what used to be, in Tsarist times, the headquarters of Russia's largest insurance company becomes, uh, in Soviet times, the headquarters of the secret police with a vast prison undergrounded filled with torture chambers and execution chambers and all the horrors you could think of. Um, he spends the next decade in the 50s working for its first chief directorate, which is in charge of foreign intelligence activities. So in other words, Mitrokin wasn't the kind of person uh, who worked in the Soviet Union, cultivating informers, finding enemies of the state, and then interrogating them. He worked in foreign intelligence. And among the things he did, and this shows he was a fairly important person, he accompanied the Soviet Olympic delegation to Sydney, Australia in 1956. Because whenever the Soviets would send artists, writers, athletes abroad, there would always be in the delegation a couple agents of the KGB to try and make sure no one defected, basically. <laughs> so... Um, Basically, and that's an important year in 1956, because Stalin dies in 1953. So Nikita Khrushchev eventually emerges as his successor. And in 1956, Khrushchev gives this famous speech where it's called it was called the secret speech because it was supposed to be secret, but it really wasn't. In February 1956, one of the most important speeches of the 20th century, where Khrushchev gave a selective denunciation of Stalin. 
of trusting Hitler, of making mistakes during World War II, of persecuting innocent communists in the late 30s and again in the late 40s and early 1950s. And Mitrokin talks about how after the speech was released, he and his other colleagues in the KGB like fiercely debated it for days afterwards. Right? But um, basically... For a combination of uh, – they're still kind of ambiguous about this. Mitrokin didn't want to talk about it that much. He made a few mistakes in the field, so to speak, and also because he was getting a little outspoken about his opposition to some of the policies of the regime. He was pulled out of foreign intelligence work and was basically made an archivist. And uh, basically from 1956 to about 1964, it was what Russians called the otopiel, the thaw under Nikita Khrushchev, where there is a little relaxation of censorship laws, a little bit more openness to discuss certain issues in the past. It's still a very repressive regime, but not as much as it was under Stalin's time. The KGB itself, its power and influence has weakened a little bit. And that comes to an abrupt end in 1964 when Khrushchev is overthrown by his predecessor, Leonid Brezhnev. And it leads to this period in the Soviet Union called Neo-Stalinism. Uh, basically from 1964 until Gorbachev comes to power in 1985, where, again, they're not killing millions of people like they did in Stalin's time, but there's no more discussion of any more liberalizing reforms with the economy or the political system. The system is now to just be maintained as it is. And Mitrokin was disappointed about that. He was angry, even, at, even before Khrushchev fell, at Khrushchev's decision to to denounce the famous novel Dr. Zhivago, written by Boris Pasternak. Pasternak couldn't go and get the Nobel Prize in Sweden because the Writers' Union, which was controlled by the Communist Party, said he couldn't. But Mitrokin couldn't bring himself to defect, but what he be or become an open opponent of the regime, what was known as the dissident movement, which starts to emerge in the mid-1960s. He was kind of an example of a member of the internal resistance to the regime, uh, as opposed to the very small dissident movement, those who openly opposed it in many ways. And most of them ended up in either jails or psychiatric hospitals or exiled from the Soviet Union. So what Mitrokin thought he could do was to document the regime's crimes, which, as he acknowledged, the KGB was the primary means by which the Soviet regime oppressed the, its own citizens by documenting as much of the material of the secret police as he possibly could. So um, he never got caught. Uh, he retires from the KGB in 1985. Right. Uh, now, in 1991, when the Soviet Union fell apart, Mitrokin decides to offer his documents to the West because he still believed that it'd be a long time before Russia fully opened up and democratized, and unfortunately, he was right about that. Ironically, he offered them to the American CIA first, and they rejected his archive. They thought this was a fake. They thought he just wanted a free ticket out of Russia for himself and his family and a lot of financial rewards. So then Mitrokin offers them to MI6, to Britain's Special Intelligence Service, and they analyzed the documents, and they concluded that they were accurate. He brought some samples to the British embassy in Riga, the capital of Latvia, which had been part of the Soviet Union um, after World War II, but it won its independence in 1991. So they were able to get him and his family and his documents all expatriated to the United Kingdom. 
And then over the next 13 years, he wrote a series of books on the KGB's activities with uh, British espionage expert Christopher Andrew and served as a consultant on Soviet espionage. And then he died in London of pneumonia in 2004. He was 82 at the time. So a fascinating individual. Um, again, not an open dissident, but kind of a, a quiet opponent to the regime. Um, but his archive, again, has proved to be a very valuable resource despite some of its uh, limitations. And again, I like to joke he was fortunate that he passed away when he did because had he lived a lot longer, uh, Putin would have probably tried to have him assassinated like he's had a number of his critics abroad assassinated. Right, yeah. And I find it interesting that, you know, he was accompanying, uh, you know, high profile people to other countries uh, as a, a KGB agent, you know, um, to protect them against defecting. And he ended up then defecting later on. I find that kind of interesting, you know. Yeah, well, the thing is about that is often when, and I sometimes fi fictional uh, stories, um, or even ones that purport to be real life, set in a in totalitarian regimes, set in dictatorships, they usually present someone who turns against the regime as bang, there's one moment, there's one thing that happened that they now become an opponent of the regime. But if you look at the the German, uh, the German resistance to the Nazi regime, and then later the um, the dissident movement in the German Democratic Republic. If you look at the dissident movement in the Soviet Union, um, it's never it's never that simple. It's usually a series of events, a series of experiences that gradually turns people against the regime. If you look at probably the two most famous Soviet dissidents, Alexander Solzhenitsyn and Andrei Sakharov, both of them at one point worked in the, worked for the Soviet regime. Solzhenitsyn in the Red Army during World War II, although you can kind of not blame him for that. The Germans invaded and everything. And then Sakharov was one of the principal uh, designers of the Soviet Union's first atomic bomb, and then later its nuclear arsenal. And only later does he turn against the regime. So in that sense, Mitrokin's kind of journey, as you say, uh, and you're correct, of, of accompanying uh, athletic delegations, make sure none of them defect, make sure none of them are susceptible to Western propaganda, to someone who turned against the regime and defected long after. Um, that's, that is often how the, the route that um, people took, because... Uh, when you live in this type of regime on a day-to-day -day basis and the danger you put yourself in by trying to oppose it in some way, even, again, if Mitrokin was doing it in secret, you can see why it'd be a very hard decision to make and why it could take you a long time to come to such a decision like that. Yeah, and, you know, this being a, a Catholic Studies podcast, we should probably talk about Catholicism yes. <laughs> maybe a little bit yeah. here. Um, we probably so should. <laughs> yeah. So in your uh, historical introduction, right, you're 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 contextualizing the Soviet Union's regime and um, the relationship with uh, Catholicism, the Catholic Church and that being the Vatican. Um, so what did that relationship look like? Why did you want to include this historical background prior to the translation? 
Yeah, it's it's a complicated relationship, and 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 for that, that was a big challenge because I wasn't sure exactly how to begin. What I thought I'd do is just first off. Uh, present kind of the ideological or spiritual opposition. So I offered statements of Marx and Lenin and their views of religion in general and religious institutions in general, again, militantly atheistic. There's no room for religious belief or religious institutions in the society we want to create. Um, And then statements towards the ideas of socialism or communism by uh, Pius IX, Leo XIII, and then Pius XI, and Pius Twelfth. So you could get that type of background as well. Um, even, you know, when you have a pope like Leo XIII and his famous encyclical Rerum Novarum, which I like to say literally is, in many ways, the founding doctrine of Christian democracy in Europe, uh, Leo XIII is very open to the creation of labor unions, the welfare state, uh, that business owners have to pay their workers a living wage, um, allow them to organize, but it's very, uh, it's against, he's dead set against socialism, uh, not just for its atheism, because he believed it upset the natural order of things in in the world. It, it called upon the state to grant itself powers that the Pope believe only belong to God. And um, so... That being said, however, you know, when the Russian Revolution happens, one of the ironies is during the interwar period from basically you have the Russian Revolution in 1917. You have the Russian Civil War from about 1917 to about 1920, although it continues into the Far East until 1921. And then you have the Soviet-Polish War. Uh, where the the Red Army tries to extend communism by force of arms through all of Europe, and they're stopped at the gates of Warsaw by the newly formed Polish state. And for the next about 18, 19 years, from about 1921 until about 1940, there's actually very few Catholics, either Roman Catholics or Byzantine Rite Catholics, living within Soviet territory. There are about a million. Most of them are ethnic Poles living in either the Belarusian or the Ukrainian Soviet Socialist Republic. Uh, but... Uh, in Moscow and Leningrad, for example, there's a few Catholic churches left, but they're largely administered and run for diplomatic staff of Western countries living in both of those uh, cities. But it's considered a huge ideological uh, opponent by the Vatican. Both Pius XI and especially Pius XII were famously anti-communist, denounced the Soviet regime, not, again, just for being a militantly atheistic state, but for its repressive policies towards its own population. And, uh, of course, Stalin held the uh, the Vatican in contempt. I finally found, by the way, there's this famous quote by Stalin uh, where he had said, um, the Pope, how many divisions does he have? Why should I care about what he says? And it took me forever to find when Stalin said that, because often it's believed he said that after World War II, right? Uh, and I people referring to the famously anti-communist Pope Pius XII. I actually found out that um, Stalin said it to the French foreign minister at the time, Pierre Laval, who would later become an important figure in the Vichy regime in France during World War II and would later be uh, shot in 1945 by the French government. Uh, So that's when Stalin actually said that, that famous quote. 
right? Uh, and ironically, I also found out that Stalin was actually praise, uh, paraphrasing in some ways Napoleon, who once said about the Pope in 1807, why should I take him seriously? Does he have 250,000 men under arms? So that was something fascinating I found. It took me forever to find out exactly when Stalin said that and who he said it to. Um, but anyway, things changed a lot. In 1939 and 1940, because, of course, Stalin and Hitler become allies. You have the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact, named after the respective foreign ministers of the Soviet Union and Nazi Germany. And basically, Hitler and Stalin agree to divide up Eastern Europe amongst themselves. And so, for example, uh, the Soviet Union invades and conquers Eastern Poland, which is incorporated into the Belarusian and Ukrainian Soviet Socialist republics, and it invades and conquers the Baltic states, Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania. And so now the Soviet Union has a fairly large population of Catholics. Lat Estonia had very few Catholics. It was largely a Lutheran state. Latvia was about 25% Catholic, about 70% Lutheran. But Lithuania was largely Roman Catholic. And the parts they absorbed from Ukraine had been part of Poland from 1921 until 1939, and before that they were part of the Austrian Empire. It was a territory known as Galicia, and Galicia had a large percentage of ethnic Ukrainians, most of whom, most of whom belonged to the Greek Catholic Church or the Byzantine Rite Church, the Eastern Catholics. So now they're all part of the Soviet Union, and the Soviet regime ruthlessly tried to suppress them in many ways, especially the Eastern Rite Churches in Ukraine. And ironically, this is kind of a sad continuity between the czarist regime and the Soviet regime. Both of them saw Eastern Rite Ukrainian Catholics as a specific threat. Okay, so um, the Soviet Union loses those territories in 1941 when Hitler invades Stalin and the Nazis attack. But the Soviet Union gets them back in 1940, 1944 and 1945. Now, um, the Eastern Rite Church in Ukraine and the Ukrainian Soviet Socialist Republic is basically driven underground. That uh, with the aid of the Russian Orthodox Church, who Stalin reaches a, an agreement with during World War II to support the war effort, and he relinquishes his persecution of the Orthodox Church. And by the late 30s, the Orthodox Church in the Soviet Union had been pushed almost to extinction. The Orthodox Church works with the Soviet regime to absorb um, to absorb the Ukrainian Catholic churches in the Ukrainian Soviet Republic. And priests who didn't agree to go along with this, bishops who didn't agree to go along with this, many of them were thrown into labor camps in Kazakhstan or in Siberia, including the head of the Eastern Rite Church, um, Joseph Slippy, Cardinal Joseph Slippy. In Lithuania as well, um, it, the, the Catholic Church isn't as violently suppressed as much, but since many Ukrainian, excuse me, since many Lithuanian priests were supporters of Lithuania's nationalist movement, because again, this tends to get forgotten, but in both Western Ukraine and in Lithuania, you have an armed resistance to Soviet rule. Basically, the Nazis pull out, the Soviets move in, but the Lithuanian and Ukrainian populations fight to drive the Soviets out, too. And this goes on until the early 50s. And so the Soviet government in Moscow always saw the Catholic Church in Lithuania with intense suspicion because they saw it as a center for nationalist opposition 
to the Soviet Union's rule. Um, and there was a very perceptive American diplomat uh, named George Kennan, who famously said in 1945 that the Soviet government was eating more than it could probably digest by absorbing Lithuania and Western Ukraine. And I always find that ironic because it's correct. Um, these regions were nothing but trouble for Moscow uh, from the late 40s until the late 1980s. They're amongst the first in Gorbachev's time to move towards independence. And in both cases, the Catholic Church is seen by Moscow as in those republics, as working with the Vatican to subvert the Soviet government and to promote bourgeois nationalist resistance. So it's always a complicating factor, even when um, you have John Paul the, John the 23rd and Paul the sixth who try to improve relations with the communist world, including the Soviet government. Um, the Soviet regime, and particularly the secret police, always views that with intense suspicion. Because they say they can say what they want, but until they flat out come out and and tell all Catholic clergy to be loyal in the Soviet in the Soviet Union to be loyal to the Soviet regime, then we simply can't trust them. And religious institutions in the Soviet Union, whether it was the Catholic Church, the Orthodox Church, the Jewish synagogues, um, even to a lesser extent Muslims in Central Asia, always suffered persecution from the regime to one degree or another because they were the only institutions le that offered a follow their political parties banned and censorship everywhere they were the only institutions that offered a different way of looking at the world than what the soviet government what the communist party prescribed so there was always going to be conflict sometimes more conflict at other times than others but there was always going to be that to some extent yeah. And, you know, that leads me to my next question where, you know, we've talked now a couple times uh, about the uh, Matrokin uh, archives, right? So what are, what are they? Like, what are the documents? And what's actually in the documents, right? You've mentioned now that they are uh, almost a paraphrase, a memory of what Matrokin remembered because um, he didn't bring any of the actual documents with him, correct? No, I mean, he had to, ret he had to make sure all those documents were back in their files every morning because, um, again, if they turned up missing, if he was one of the archivists, eventually they would have found out uh, it was him. So, um, again, he was not one of these people who was going to go to go to a, a prison or a labor camp uh, because of his opposition. He did it because he was because uh, he felt he he could avoid getting caught. Right. Yeah. So what like what about the Vatican is in the, these papers? Well, there's um, it starts off with an analysis of KGB efforts to break up underground religious groups of Catholic and Orthodox believers in Moscow and Leningrad who were receiving subversive religious literature from abroad, from uh, places like Sweden, for example, again, ironically, a largely Protestant country, Lutheran country, but um, also from Poland, uh, because the Soviets always viewed their Polish satellite as really dangerous because it had 
a little bit more openness to the West. And the idea was subversive material, religious literature makes it w- way to Poland and then it makes its way to Belarus or Ukraine and then it makes its way to Russia. So it details efforts by the secret police to break up these underground circles of religious believers who are trying to distribute religious literature. Then it moves on to KGB efforts in Ukraine, for example, to try and root out the underground Ukrainian Catholic Church. Because basically, and it's hard to imagine, I mean, this went on for 40 years, there were Ukrainian Catholics and Ukrainian Catholic clergy who continued to try and practice their faith secretly. Uh, and again, in Stalin's time, or even in Khrushchev's time, I mean, it makes Khrushchev kind of a complicating figure because in some ways he was worse about religion than Stalin was after World War II in terms of harassing religious believers, closing churches, that type of thing. So then it goes into their efforts to discredit uh, leaders of the Eastern Rite churches in Ukraine with their with Ukrainian emigrate groups. And then it moves on to discuss the position of the Catholic Church in Lithuania. And on one hand, during the what was called Ospolitik of John the Twenty Third and Paul the Sixth, the Vatican works out an arrangement with the Soviet government where they won't appoint or they'll try not to appoint bishops in the Lithuanian Catholic Church who will cause trouble for Soviet authorities. And in turn, what the KGB tries to do is to try and put a number of their agents within the church administration in Lithuania. So, for example, a number of the delegates from Lithuania who attend the Second Vatican Council in the early 60s were KGB agents. And they weren't just sent there to observe. They're there to do a number of things. One, to deny that there's any persecution of religious institutions in the Soviet Union. And and this was a big one to keep emigre Lithuanian clergy or Ukraine or Lithuanian emigre organizations from dominating the proceedings to try and isolate them as much as possible. And as also as um, Mitrokin's documents talk about, that's what the, hung- the Hungarian communist regime did too. It tries to reach out the Vatican to reach out an arrangement on the appointment of bishops, for example, because for, John the Twenty Third and Paul the Sixth maintaining the ecclesiastical structure of the church behind the Iron Curtain is very, very important. Um, Lithuania, for example, was uh, basically the only place in the Soviet Union where you still had a clear diocesan structure. For example, um, even in in, in Western Belarusia, with it had an ethnic Polish population, it was kind of ambiguous uh, the administrative structure. But anyway. In Hungary, too, a lot of the Hungarian clerical delegates to the Second Vatican Council were agents of the Hungarian secret police, the Aveja. So that uh, the Mitrokin's archive goes into that as a big priority. Minimize the influence of emigre organizations, uh, try to gain access to the Pope and influence them in some ways, um, and also to, um, again, try and subvert any claims that there's any persecution of religious institutions within the Soviet government. And then the archive goes on to talk about a number of international conferences the KGB would have with secret police forces and other Eastern Bloc countries, as well as Cuba, for example, to talk about how to reduce the Vatican's influence abroad, how to engage in counter-propaganda against it. Um, how to recruit agents and put them in clerical ranks, for example. Um, and then the concluding segment is on the, the, the deep concerns the KGB had of 
the events in Poland, right? The election of John Paul II, and then the solidarity crisis in Poland, which shook the communist regime to the core. Because um, the communist regime in Poland was always the most unstable in the Cold War. Most of the other satellite states had one period of upheaval. Poland has a number of them. 56, 68, 70, 71, 76, then the big one, late 79 to early 81, where the Polish workers try to establish an independent labor union, Solidarity, uh, rather than one of the labor unions run by the Communist Party, uh, which becomes, for many Poles, not just a labor union, but kind of a rival government. And one interesting revelation was, of course, the KGB was really worried that the unstable events in Poland could cause instability in the Soviet republics of Belarusia and Ukraine. Like, there's a, there's a funny uh, passage where it says that the, in the Catholic Church in Belarusia, pretty much every priest is an ethnic Pole there, and none of them can be trusted. Um, and there's a number of humorous little anecdotes that the, the archive is, is, uh, has as well. It talks about how in Lithuania, and this was something actually I was only barely aware of, in the early 70s, there was a major nationalist resistance movement in Lithuania against the Soviet regime. There were a number of cases of Lithuanian university students setting themselves on fire in protest against the regime, uh, imitating Czech students who did the same in 1968 after the Warsaw Pact invasion of that country to crush the Prague Spring. And it talks about how there's this meatpacking plant in Alatysk outside of uh, Vilnius, one of the, the, the capital of the Lithuanian SSR. And Leonid Brezhnev had a huge portrait of himself at the meatpacking factory, which again, that wasn't uncommon. Pretty much every factory in the Soviet Union would have a painting of the general secretary of the Communist Party. But it talks about how some Lithuanian workers had defaced the portrait, and Brezhnev was kind of a big man anyway, and it said, get meat from this pig. <laughs> um, and basically, whenever something like that happened, the KGB would believe that it's, it's Lithuanian nationalists behind this kind of thing who are being supported by the Vatican or being supported by reactionary circles in the Vatican. So again, even when the, the church was trying to reach out to the regimes, um, it wasn't really reciprocated that the regimes, the Soviet regime and the satellite states would make minor concessions, but they never really lost their hostility or to or their suspicion of uh, the Vatican. Um, and certain clergy protested Ostpolitik for this very reason, like um, Cardinal Slippy, who had spent 18 years in Soviet labor camps before President John F. Kennedy and John XXIII were able to arrange his release. And he spends the rest of his life in, in, in exile in the West. And Joseph Benzente, who is the cardinal the primate of the Catholic Church within Hungary, who because of his support of the Hungarian Revolution in 56, the Soviets invade to crush that, he spends about 14 years living in exile in the American embassy. And they argue that Ostpolitik, uh, these Eastern policies, and the name Ostpolitik comes from the West German government's also attempts to reach out to East Germany and the Eastern side of the Iron Curtain. We're giving so much to these communist regimes and getting nothing in return. Uh, we're getting very minor returns, damaging the moral authority of the church. 
that's abandoning religious believers behind the Iron Curtain in order to maintain, in order to work out arrangements about the appointment of bishops or maintaining the, the diocesan structure of the church. And I would say one thing that the Mitrokan archive has revealed is that that critique of Ospolitik was largely correct. Uh, that the regimes never really lost their hostility towards the Catholic Church and their own borders or the Vatican and would only give very minor concessions. Uh, I will say one other thing for people who want to read the book. There's l been long rumors that that uh, the KGB tried to arrange the Pope's assassination, uh, that the, po the assassination attempt against the Pope by that uh, Turkish individual uh, was actually secretly being manipulated by Moscow. There's been long rumors that uh, Bulgaria's secret police force uh, helped uh, the man who tried to assassinate the Pope gain access to him, and that the KGB was secretly behind this because they saw John Paul II as such a threat. There's nothing in the Mitrokin archive that directly points to that actually happening so um again that might very well be true and there's been other research that has pointed somewhat in that direction but at least in the Mitrokin archive there's no there's no smoking gun which points to yuri and who's the head of the kgb from 67 to 82 and he takes over for brezhnev that he appoint that he approved of something like that. That the Soviet government saw John Paul II as a Polish pope, as probably the most anti-communist pope since Pius XII. I mean, John Paul II was a big f fan of Ostpolitik either. Did they see him as a danger and a threat? Yes, they did. Did they try to have him assassinated? At least with the Mitrokin archive, it doesn't it doesn't say that. Oh yeah, that happened, and here's the evidence for it. So. Right, yeah, and sticking with your audience there, you know, this is a primary source book, right? Yes. So who is your, you know, intended audience? Is it just scholars who look at the Soviet Union and Catholicism, or is there a broader audience you're hoping that this book reaches? Well, since it's a fairly short work, I think that'll help it get a larger a larger audience. I mean, yes, the primary audience is for people who are interested in the history of the Catholic Church uh, during the Cold War, the the history of the Catholic Church within the Soviet Union, which is a topic that still in my opinion hasn't gotten the scholarly attention I think it deserves. Uh and also, the relationships between the Vatican and the Soviet regime. Particularly, I mean, the problem is so much of that tends to focus on the papacy of Pius Twelfth, and then they kind of jump to John Paul II. And I get it, in a way, because that's where a lot of the conflict emerges. And conflict's always fun to research and write about. Um, but people who are interested in what's going on in between those periods, during the papacies of John Twenty-Third and Pius Twelfth, I think can find a lot of valuable information here. And I wrote the introduction for non-specialists. And I think that um, I, it does have kind of a broad audience of anyone who wants to explore kind of a neglected history of the church uh, during this time period. And particularly because I like to joke that European history doesn't end in 1945, right? <laughs> and that the duration of the, 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 
files that Matrokin looked at are largely from the early 60s to the early 80s. It offers a lot of insight on two pretty important decades in the history of Europe and in the history of the Catholic Church. I mean, this is the era of Vatican II um, and the Church's efforts to um, expand its, uh, its global identity in many ways. Yeah. I mean, that's what I really liked about your introduction, because I'm an Americanist. I tend to stay within the United States for my research, and so I don't get to uh, look outside of the U.S. for that reason often. And your introduction was very, not easy, but uh, I was able to understand a lot of the working parts of what was going on because of that. Well, thank you. Yeah, and um, I... I, the, the problem is often when you when you do these kind of things, you, you research a lot about it, and you kind of assume that everyone has the same amount of knowledge you do, and you have to be very careful never to write a work that way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah, well, I've got one last question for you, and that's what projects are you currently working on? You know, the book just came out in August, I know, but are there any lingering questions that remain from your work on the KGB and the Vatican, you know, that you plan on pursuing, or are you looking in a new direction? Well, the answer to both of those questions is yes, because on one hand, I have a book coming out in December, and that's my first, like, I like to joke, secular book. It's a history of the Cold War, looking at America's first two ambassadors to the United Nations. Uh, But there is one section. Uh, there is one section of the book where I talk a little bit about religious issues. When Henry Cabot Lodge, who was Eisenhower's ambassador to the UN, he had to take Khrushchev on a tour of the United States, and he got a le- he got a letter, a fascinating letter from a priest in Massachusetts, just saying that hey, you didn't let Khrushchev spread atheistic propaganda, did you? <laughs> Which also showed up in an article I wrote, Henry Cabot Lodge Jr. in the Catholic Church. Uh, but actually, my uh, my next two writing projects, one of which is going to be on the important speeches of the Cold War. And so obviously I want to mention some of the uh, homilies of John Paul II, of course. And then I want to write a history of the period from 1979 to 1981, uh, how the detente period in the Cold War ended and the Cold War becomes a uh, enters into a deep freeze again in the early 80s. And a big part of that book is going to be the election of John Paul II, the Solidarity Movement in Poland, and how that changed the world in many ways. How it upended the permanence of the division of the Iron Curtain and brought the issues of the Cold War and uh, Soviet repression of religious institutions um, and resistance against uh, the regimes on the eastern side of the Iron Curtain back to the world's attention. So that's going to have a major element in my next writing projects. And I do really want to explore that a lot more. Well, that all sounds really interesting. And I can't wait to uh, read what you have next that's coming out. Um, Sean, thanks for being on the show. Thank you so much for having me. It was an honor. Right. This has been uh, New Books in Catholic Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network.